From KCRW, this is Nocturne. I was a Zen Buddhist monk during the latter half of the 80s. I left that position in 1990, and I, you know, did a lot of different things. That's Clark Strand. Here are some of the things he went on to do after being a Buddhist monk. He was the first editor-in-chief of the magazine Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. He founded the Green Meditation Center in Woodstock, New York. He's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other outlets. And he's the author of several books, including Waking Up to the Dark, Ancient Wisdom for a Sleepless Age. His work draws from religion, spirituality, cultural anthropology, and planetary ecology, which is to say he's one of those thinkers who can synthesize ideas from pretty disparate fields to form new ways of understanding the world. He once founded a study group called Koans of the Bible. It was an attempt to get a lot of different kinds of people together in one room to read and discuss the Bible together. You know, atheists, agnostics, religious people, non-religious people, yogis, Buddhists, Orthodox Jews. And we, you know, we got all kinds of people showing up on a Thursday night in Woodstock. The group found itself examining environmental issues through the lens of the Bible. And so finally, our reading of the Bible, you know, we weren't reading it for its religious content at all. You know, we were beginning to read it as kind of a document of where humanity went wrong starting from the very beginning, and how we found ourselves in this fix. According to Strand, part of this fix we found ourselves in has to do with our relationship to the dark. More from Nocturne in a moment. Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com slash join. I don't remember exactly when I realized that I was waking up in the middle of the night. Certainly I was a very young child, and it may simply be because it's natural to wake in the middle of the night. This is part of our our natural circadian rhythms in the absence of high levels of artificial lighting. I was getting in bed and it was getting dark, and you know, I would sleep and I would wake after about four or five hours. And in the beginning, I would just sort of lie there. It was sort of wonderful. And uh, I remember it being kind of a magical time. I was never afraid of the dark as a child. You know, if there were any monsters under my bed, they never bothered me. But at a certain point, probably when I was in about third or fourth grade, 
Suddenly, I have memories of deciding while I'm up, everyone else is asleep. It's beautiful out. I'm not afraid of the dark. Why not just step outside? And so I did. By the time Clark Strand was a teenager, he was often walking five miles or more in the middle of the night. He felt profoundly at home in the dark. And occasionally someone would say to my mother, I saw your son walking in the middle of the night. She would say what she had learned to say by then, was, yeah, he'll do that. (laughs) There's a chapter in Waking Up to the Dark called Hour of the Wolf, which Strand describes as the time in the deepest darkness of night when human beings are at their most vulnerable. The hour of the wolf is that time when you've woken up and even the most mundane worries of daily life feel so stressful or frightening that they might crush you. But Strand believes that this funhouse mirror aspect of the night is an anomaly. He describes a time when the rhythm of human life included a natural period of wakefulness in the middle of the night. And he points out that in every religion, there's a long-established tradition involving waking in the middle of the night for some kind of spiritual practice, be it meditation, chanting, or prayer. But so what is the hour of the wolf? What mysterious force causes a time of potential meditative stillness to warp into something so dire and foreboding? Well, the hour of the wolf is what happens to the hour of God when you eliminate the darkness. When you eliminate the dark, when you increase the amount of artificial light, when you keep the lights on uh, at night, when you keep the screens on at night after the sun has gone down, you know, when there's street lights everywhere, the less dark you have to work with, the closer the wolf comes. Now, normally you would think that, okay, a wolf is, you know, since we're speaking a metaphor here, a wolf is frightened, right, of fire. Maybe you're frightened of light, right, wouldn't come. But the, the wolf of the hour of the wolf looks for those little pockets of darkness that are left over in this billion-watt world and hones in on them. Because this is a place where human beings are, you know, last little pocket of privacy, a last little pocket of personal identity, you know, sort of untouched and unsullied by the world. This little pocket of vulnerability, maybe, and it zeroes in on it. So if, if you turn off all the lights, or you live someplace very dark like I do, and you give yourself a lot of darkness, what happens is you, you naturally lie in bed for an hour or so, and then you fall asleep, and then you wake after four hours, and you wake to wonder. It's just, you know, there's, there's such a tremendous feeling of peace. But if you restrict the amount of darkness, if you chip it away on either side with artificial light so that there's very little darkness left, if you compress sleep so that you no longer wake to that hour, the hour of God, then when you do wake, and you will as you get older, then you tend to wake to to a more agitated state of mind. It's almost as if the body knows that now is a time to, to be open and relaxed and trusting, but you can't let yourself do it. You haven't really been able to let go of the anxieties and worries of the day. They intrude upon the night along with the light. According to Strand, the pervasiveness of the hour of the wolf coincides with the electrification of our world. 
societies, you know, in the developed nations of the world at least, and increasingly in, in all nations where there's a power grid, they have created conditions for work and life in general, whereby we compress our work into eight-hour days, we, we compress our sleep into eight-hour nights, and that doesn't really work. It doesn't work for our biology. It doesn't, doesn't work for our genetic programming. When you give yourself too little darkness to work with, it begins to warp your consciousness. It begins to change your whole idea of what's important in life. It's almost like it sort of wears away your soul. Strand never outgrew his childhood habit of waking up in the darkness. He's continued to get out of bed, put on his shoes, and wander through the night, often in the woods near his home. He spends the time thinking, observing the creatures and landscape, and connecting with the inner rhythms that can only be heard and felt in the darkness. He'd long thought of that time as the hour of God, a period of connection to something deep and sacred. And then, one summer night in June 2011, Strand woke to the darkness and got ready for his regular walk. And I went downstairs, I got dressed, as usual, and I went down, I had my hand on the doorknob to go out. It was a very beautiful night, a moonlit night, just, you know, barely this side of cool, just sort of perfect walking weather, my favorite time. It's sort of the sweet spot for walking during the Hour of God, the months of June and July. So I was very much looking forward to it, and uh, I put my hand on the doorknob, and I felt a hand on my right shoulder. And I think I knew that there was, wasn't anyone physically there in the room with me, but I heard a voice, a male voice, speak very directly into my ear. And it said, don't go out tonight. Remain calm and be very, very still. Now, you know, I guess some people would be a little freaked out by that. But, uh, but I've never been freaked out by things that happen in the night because uh, it's part of, I guess, not being afraid of the dark. But it's also true that I'd never heard a voice before. I don't hear voices. I'm not generally wired that way. But I decided, you know, this was an exceptional event. As much as I wanted to walk, I would do what the voice said. So I went and I lay down on uh, the couch by the window overlooking the moon. And I did what I had been trained to do when I was a, a Zen monk, just emptying my mind and getting very, very still. That's what I've been told to do. So I, I stayed like that for about 40 minutes. And then I, I, I knew, I felt it, that there was someone in the room with me. And uh, I had my eyes closed and I opened my eyes and I saw directly, you know, in front of my field of vision, about maybe a foot and a half away from me, I saw two reed stalks blowing as if like moved by a, like an invisible breeze. And then they disappeared and they were replaced by the face of a young girl, about 16 or 17 years old. And she had a very moon-like pale face, freckles around her nose, and uh, auburn hair cut short hazel eyes, and she had an X of black electrical tape over her mouth. You know, I looked at this and the eyes were very, very urgent. There was a tremendous sense of urgency in her eyes. I didn't know who she was. I'd never had a vision of, 
any kind like this. I didn't know what this was. I, but the tape had to come off, that I knew. And so I leaned forward and as gently as I could, being careful not to touch her, because I somehow felt that that absolutely could not happen. And I pulled the, I pulled the tape off of her mouth and it, I can still remember what it felt like. It was, you know, the feeling of tape pulling against skin. And uh, then she, she gasped. It was as if she hadn't been able to breathe, but it was a strange sound. It's a sound of like air rushing into a crypt after a long time or something like that. It was like a whooshing sound. It didn't fit the size of her body, which was quite small. It was like she hadn't been able to breathe for a long time, for maybe ages. And then I opened my mouth to speak. You know, I wanted to engage with her, ask who she was at the very least. But she shook her head. And then we looked at one another for a long moment. And then, this is the damnedest thing, you know, I, I've been trained as a Zen monk. And when you're trained in Zen, you're trained to ignore things like this. They're called makio or illusion. You're meant to dismiss them. So I just closed my eyes and went back to meditating. And then when I opened my eyes again, about 40 minutes later, she was gone. But the next morning I woke up and I turned the downstairs over two or three times looking for that tape. I was convinced it would be there. I couldn't find it. But after that moment, she was always there. I mean, I couldn't see her. But by daylight, at night, she was constantly in my presence, to my left. Almost like you can feel the heat of someone's body who's standing close to you. It was like that. I could feel her physical presence with me wherever I went. And it was like that for about two weeks. And then, two weeks later, I, I woke up again to go for another walk. Same thing. I mean, I've been walking every night since then, but, but, you know, two weeks later, I was up for another walk. I put my hand on the doorknob, same hand on my shoulder, same message, don't go out, remain inside, be very, very still. But now, now I know what to expect. Now I know what's going to happen. So I go and I meditate, but the whole time I'm meditating, it, you know, it's hard to even make my mind still because this question that I've got, I've had all this time, who are you? That's it. So I open my eyes again, she's there, and now of course the tape's off her mouth. So I say, who are you? And she says, I am the hour of God. And I say, some of the most foolish words I think I've ever spoken in my life, I say, because this is what I've been calling this time in the middle of the night for years. When I wake up to walk, I've called it the hour of God because it seems so sacred. So I said, I think I know what that is. I mean, <laughs> Jesus, you know, what, what, what kind of idiot? You know, I, <laughs> I mean, it's laughable, really. You know, I just say, yeah, 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 right. Sure, I know what that is. And she said, if you really knew, you would have said who, not what. And that was it. That was, that was, that just, it was like it just flipped my mind over on its belly. It was like I just suddenly understood what had been happening my whole life. 
I, I realized that, you know, I, I always thought of the darkness as a what, as a thing. I thought of that state of mind as a, as a what. I thought of myself as a what. I thought of the whole world as a what. And she said, here I am in front of you. And I'm a who, and the whole world is a who. The whole world is me. There was no way of walking that back, that understanding. At that moment, I think I realized uh, my life is, is now changed. Everything, you know, everything changed. I suddenly existed in the world in an entirely different way. And the world existed for me in a completely different way. And I realized that, you know, I was connecting with a, a, a state of mind that, that really my earliest ancestors would have recognized as their birthright and would have understood to be the, the basis for life and life on Earth. They would have understood this. But that knowledge was lost as we began to, to live the way we do now. The way we live now, being bathed in artificial light and all that goes along with that. But farther back even than that, to the discovery of fire and the advent of agriculture. Once uh, human beings decided to seize control of the planetary ecology and basically redesign it as a theme park for Homo sapiens, it was just kind of a matter of time before that sort of calculating solar, rational, mathematical consciousness sort of took over and, you know, and we began to, to live as we do now. You know, we've basically been living the way we live now, minus a few gadgets, for about 10,000 years. I mean, the mindset has remained fairly unaltered for 10,000 years. Now, I'm not talking about indigenous people who've lived as hunter-gatherers, but for people who are increasingly beginning to practice agriculture and, um, you know, a more calculated form of horticulture, uh, yeah, it's the same basic mindset. This basically says, you know, we're going to feed ourselves rather than letting our mother feed us. We can do better than the planet. We can manage the planet better than the planet can manage the planet. But that presupposes that the planet doesn't know what it's doing. That idea that humans know best how to shape the world, Strand has a name for it civilization. Well, culture and civilization are not the same, and I think that's really important to know. Culture is uh, founded on story, on, you know, tribal identity perhaps, natural way in which people cohere together in groups, usually small groups, begin to tell stories, the rituals by which they fall in love and birth their babies and bury their dead. These are culture. Civilization occurs when you reach a critical mass of population where suddenly you've got to stay in one place and do backbreaking work and uh, basically begin exercising all kinds of forms of, of mind control over other people in order to get them to do this backbreaking work of redesigning the world. And as much fun as this big project of redesigning the world has been, with its comforts and entertainments, it's becoming pretty clear that it has some serious drawbacks. We live in a time when people are basically addicted to civilization and all of its artifacts. So, you know, we have these things that we think we need, we're convinced we need them, we're convinced we have to have them and create them and maintain them and fix them when they break. But in fact, you know, as animals, we really don't need any of them. And uh, we're destroying the world. Climate change is the ultimate bottom line. Human beings have 
lived in, in really in defiance of the natural order for a long time. But, you know, the natural order is much, much bigger than humans. So you can't really prevail against, you know, a planetary ecology. It's just too big. Clark Strand makes a direct connection between the mindset that's gotten us into our current predicament and our relationship to the darkness. We talk about the Enlightenment, and that's seen as a kind of a figurative thing. The belief in science and rationality and the belief that human beings can understand and can control everything. But it's far more literal than that. As we extended the range of what could be clearly seen and known, because it's illuminated from every side, that gives you the illusion that you can control everything. And uh, it just simply isn't true. And the result of all of that illumination is, you know, it has kind of a reciprocal effect on the mind. The more wakefulness you have, the less sleep you have, the more you diminish the personal, the interior, the intuitive, the more you erode the basis for faith. And I'm not talking here about religious faith that has, you know, an object. That's a modern invention anyway. This idea that you believe in certain tenets or you believe in the literal truth of a scripture or something like that. It's a modern invention. It's basically a form of corporate control. It's created by uh, religious institutions to sort of manage the masses and manipulate them. Real faith grows in the dark. It's like a seed under the ground. You know, it, it, you can't see it, but it's there. And the warmth of the sun and the water seeping down into it activates it and it begins to grow. And it naturally yearns up towards the light, but it's rooted in the dark. Which brings us back to the Hour of God, the lady, Estran calls her, the girl with auburn hair that appeared to him when he woke in the night. Strand says she's appeared to him and spoken to him many times. He thinks she's ancient and has been present throughout history with many names, one of which is Mary. He writes... Mary herself is the same from one age to the next, the mother who wakes her children in the darkness of the night and holds them at her breast to give them spiritual rest. He sees the literal illumination we've embraced as a forsaking of this ancient knowledge at our core, something he perceives as inherently feminine. As people began to focus on that sort of solar masculine consciousness, to the expense of the more lunar feminine side of things, you know, the world began to, to, to tip out of balance, way out of balance. We have triggered a sixth mass extinction. You know, this is only the sixth time this has happened in the world's history, and it's the only time one species has brought it upon an entire planet. So I'm always sort of astounded that people think that uh, human beings can go on as they are in the absence of one half of the world's species of plant and animal life, surface plant and animal life. I mean, we're not even talking about the oceans yet, which is another huge, huge issue. So, I, you know, I'm sort of astounded that people believe that there will be some technological solution to a change that massive and on that scale. We don't think of ourselves as animals. We think that we occupy some sort of virtual realm as if we lived on the internet or something, as if we had already sort of digitalized our consciousness or something like that, but that's far from the case. We're all biological beings. We have to eat, we're born, we die. We pass our genes along to our children. 
It's the same game. We're playing the same game as the earthworms, and we don't know it. We live in denial of that fact. But I think that there's some part of our brains, some deep, deeply seated part of our brains or our, or our genetic memory or something that sort of looks at the world we're living in now and knows, oh, wow, this really can't continue. I mean, that, that awareness has been there since the Bible. Look at the Bible. It starts at Genesis and ends in Revelation with the end of the world. And, you know, the seeds of it are sown right there at the very beginning when Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden and they have to start farming. And where does that story end? The, the Bible is this big thought experiment that says what happens when human beings decide to be as gods? To me, that's what the real story of the Bible is. It's a thought experiment that ends up with civilization driving its car off a cliff. I don't think that's what has to happen. There's another way of looking at the world, and that's the way that our ancestors looked at it. And we can recover that if we give ourselves over to this more lunar, more feminine, darker mode of consciousness. The only way out of this catastrophe, according to Strand, involves nothing less than a revolution. We can fight revolutions from now and to the end of the world, whenever that is, and nothing will ever be accomplished. Political revolutions come and go, and they're all more or less alike. The only revolution worth fighting is the one that overthrows human consciousness so that it's no longer in charge of the world, or no longer perceives itself to be in charge of the world. It's actually never been in charge of the world. Otherwise, we wouldn't be poised on the brink of ruin because of global warming and deforestation and mass species extinction and all of these other factors. We wouldn't be in that position if consciousness itself were not the problem. Practically speaking, the revolution that Strand is talking about involves embracing the dark, both literally and on a deeper level. The dark revolt or the dark revolution involves scaling back on electrical lighting, all sources of artificial lighting, and giving your body and your mind the rest and the space that it needs to reclaim its own power and autonomy. It's a very powerful thing to, to get that back. You don't even realize it's been stolen from you. You don't even realize that your pocket is being picked. It's being picked by Facebook. It's being picked by driving down a road in a car. Just about every activity sort of picks the pockets of the soul in the 21st century. So you don't even realize that that theft is occurring. You don't realize that you're losing anything until you start to get it back. I think one of the most reliable ways to do that is to give yourself more time in darkness. So the very literal answer is to turn out the lights. It's that simple. Do it all at once or do it light by light. For years, in our house, when a fixture would break, that would be that. We would just never fix it. We've got all kinds of broken fixtures around our house because, you know, we just didn't need that much light. But then there's also what I call the cultivated dark, and people are doing that already. People are practicing meditation, they're practicing yoga, all kinds of different spiritual modalities for meditation or prayer. These are ways of reclaiming the figurative dark, as it were. And you really have to kind of work it from both ends if you want to reclaim your, your sanity as a human being. You, you really have to do both. You have to give yourself more time in the dark, and you also have to cultivate the darkness as a state of mind. You have to be willing to 
enter into a space of uncertainty. I think the very, very first step is to just close your eyes. And, you know, that, that's something you can do anywhere. Simply shut your eyes and draw within and find some way to center yourself in your physical body and to know that you're a physical being. You know, the body is very wise. You know, the body does its work naturally. No one has to think about breathing. No one has to think to make their heart beat. This is not outside of you, but you have to recenter yourself. First, know who you are and what you are. You know, you're an animal. You know, a human is an animal. That's what a human being is at the very best. The very best a human being is like a, is like a bear, a squirrel, or a dragonfly. That's the best of us, not the worst. So to draw within yourself and to feel those rhythms, the rhythms within you, you know, that circadian rhythm that governs when we wake and when we sleep, that internal rhythm, that heartbeat, it's like the heartbeat of the world. At the very end of Clark Strand's book, Waking Up to the Dark, is a section called Gospel According to the Dark. It's three pages long, and it's a sort of manifesto in first person. Strand says that Our Lady dictated it to him sometime in the fall of 2011. He says it was a beautiful sunlit day when he was at home alone, lying on the bed in his upstairs bedroom. He says that by then it was clear that Our Lady wanted him to write a book about the rosary, a deeper, older sense of the rosary than had been written before. He remembers thinking he wasn't up to the task and that he wouldn't even know where to begin. Then he felt her presence more strongly in the room, and he said, how can you expect me to write a book about something I don't understand? As soon as he uttered those words, she was there, standing beside the bed. Then she placed her hand on his chest, and he covered it with his. When she released his hand, she said, now write. Strand says there must have been a pen and notebook by the bed, because an hour later, the gospel according to the dark was complete. He says he has no memory of writing it down, but the handwriting is his, and all of the words are hers. It begins with this paragraph. Say to the nations, let there be no light upon the face of the earth. Let the machines all cease their movements, the wires their humming. Let the skies be empty of satellites and silver birds. Let the forests return and the watercourses find their way. All things seek their mother, save man only. Now is the hour of her return. I think the way it ends is telling. It says, The gospel according to darkness, in whose womb is the birth of stars. Would you lift the edge of my robe to seek my wonders and the constellations? Will a galaxy answer your questions about the soul? He is a fool who supposes there is anything to find in the heavens. As in the heavens, so it is on earth. I alone am, but I am not alone. For you are with me and within me. Your heartbeat is my heartbeat, and your breathing is mine. The dirt is my body. It does not defile me. 
The fire that sweeps the mountains is the red of my hair. What is death to you, I experience as a kiss. I part my lips, and my tongue touches that which you call a soul. To me, it is but the sweetness of a lover's mouth. Fly from it, and you will drive the world into an abyss. The Gospel according to the dark. So, it's all there. Anyone can experience that. You know, that, that is our birthright. And that's the place to begin. You have no power in the face of so much insanity and, and so much rapacious greed, except the power that you have within your body. But that's very, very powerful. And that's the place to put down roots and plant your seed. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. The show is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Nick White is our senior editor. Nocturne is distributed by KCRW and also receives support from KCRW's Independent Producer Project. You can find more information about Clark Strand at our website, nocturnepodcast.org, in the show notes for this episode. He has a new book coming out in November entitled The Way of the Rose, The Radical Path of the Divine Feminine Hidden in the Rosary, which he wrote with his wife, Perdita Finn. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're at Nocturne Podcast, or connect over email at hello at nocturnepodcast.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas. Till next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.